Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now listen, they want me to say hello. Welcome to the James Well best bits of tonight's show. Wish you can hear every night Monday to Friday on Talk Radio from 7 till 10. But I said, wouldn't it be best to call it the worst of whale? So have a listen. See what you think. The James Whale Show. Come praise the whale on Talk Radio. Shall we talk about, uh, because I know it's one of your favourite subjects for a moment, we'll come back to the calls, please keep calling in, because all Britons in China should leave the country if they can to minimise the risk of exposure to the uh, uh, coronavirus. They should all stay there, not come back. Well, I think I, you might have a point, yeah, actually, stay there, because there for it about seems a year to then, be spreading. Yeah. There are 20,000 confirmed cases. Apparently they're losing control of it. Really? Don't want to panic everyone, but apparently they're losing oh. control of this. Uh, let's talk to uh, Professor Jonathan Ball, Professor of, funnily enough, Molecular Virology. Uh, Jonathan, good evening. How serious is it, uh, or is this just because there's probably a bit of a lack of news? I don't know. Um, well, it's... It, it is serious. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, the, the rate at which this epidemic has grown. So this is a virus that we think, think probably emerged from animals into humans in the middle of November. Yeah. Uh, was reported at the end of December. And since then, we have 20,000 confirmed cases. And that's probably the tip of the iceberg because there are likely to be lots more Uh, people walking around with the infection that haven't yet been diagnosed and indeed the Chinese authorities are working through a backlog of of tests. Uh, And so the the rate at which it spread within particularly Hubei province but is now also spreading in other parts of China is a serious threat which is why the WHO have, have issued the public health emergency. And it's every other country in the world potentially has either has seen or will see coronavirus infections and whilst in the first wave of infections it may be one or two viruses or cases and we'll easily get on top of them in places like the UK or Germany or US it's what happens in the mid to longer term uh, particularly if the virus ends up in places like sub-Saharan Africa or parts of many parts of the world that lack good surveillance and healthcare infrastructures and you know then then it can rage out of all control. Have they been lying, the Chinese authorities? Because I remember at the beginning they were saying 16 people had died and I thought, well, why is this making such big news? Yeah. Well, it's difficult to to say at the moment because it is such early days. I think it's definitely taken them by surprise, the scale at which this has spread. And I think, you know, past coronavirus outbreaks maybe have not lulled people into a sense of false security. That that would be unfair. Um, Every virus behaves differently. I think that's, that's the key here. Uh, and whilst things were learned from the SARS outbreak, for example, in 2002, that reached about you know 8,000 total cases, 800 deaths. But it took more than a year, and we're now at 20,000 cases in a fraction of that. So this this virus is clearly behaving differently, or 
you know, people within China are behaving dif- differently. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's probably more to do with the virus behavior and the fact that it's, you know, my, my best guess would be that it's more difficult to identify those individuals infected. And that gives the virus time and chance to spread before, you know, somebody turns up in a hospital with a, a pneumonia and, and you know what to do then. Apparently, yeah, it's two weeks and you don't have any symptoms and it's still transmittable. Yeah, we yeah, this is you know certainly that's um, possible. So some of the early cases there was obvious evidence of the virus replicating in the lungs. It was particularly one of the children, a family case, and whether or not that virus can transmit, we still don't know. But I think you know if if the asymptomatic individuals can transmit, then that's a massive problem because they're incredibly difficult to identify. In fact, almost impossible. But if there's a significant amount of transmission from people who've got mild infections, that's still a serious problem because most people would be thinking, "Well, oh, I've got a cold or a bit of a, you know, bit of a flu, and I'll be all right by Monday." So, <clears throat> my producer used the term "plague" in my ear a few moments ago. Is this what could be described as a plague on its way? Yeah, no, you know, we have to we have to be very careful about the sort of language that we use for, for the reason that you said you know that you you can end up generating a lot of knock-on problems i think we need to look at the evidence at the moment and the evidence at the moment is that outside of china there's very little evidence of the infection and when it does appear it's controlled rapidly what's happening in china is very difficult to gauge at the moment clearly there's more infections than perhaps the authorities hoped for this time last week um and that poses a problem for the for the rest of the world. And, you know, define plague. If if this virus is allowed... If, well, let's put it this way. If the Chinese can't get on top of this virus, then it will spread around the world. And with it, it will have some associated people with serious disease, and some of those people will die. In other words, you know, we'll have another... Um, respiratory virus doing the rounds in in winter and it will probably become as established as one of those you know we've already got four human coronaviruses mm. the james whale show come praise the whale on talk radio uh right i'm fed up with the whole of this uh, as i've said before uh this saving the planet nobody's going to save the planet uh we can clean it we can uh, be less um less intrusive and do that but all this Baloney. Baloney. Uh, about, oh, well, you know, we stop using fossil fuels and everything will be fine. It'll, you know, the, the climate changes. It will continue changing. And just before, you know, it's probably not as uh, a wise thing for us to uh, belch out the most disgusting things. But as far as I know, only CO2 we're, cleaning, we're, about. we're cleaning stuff up. And that's great. But then to put a ban on this and a ban on that, what, are they, what is this? Some sort of dictatorship we're living in? I mean, really, honestly, a ban on selling new petrol, diesel or hybrid cars in the UK will be brought forward uh, to 2035, 15 years from now. Um, I mean, this is we're becoming a totalitarian state and people go, well, we've got to save the planet. You're not going to save the planet. I mean, this is complete and utter stupidity. Oh, gosh. I I mean, they've developed the petrol engine and the diesel engine, so they're... They're pretty unpolluting now. No, well, I just don't know. I've got to We're not. Let's talk to the uh, celebrated motoring journalist and former Top Gear presenter, uh, Quintin Wilson. Quintin, good evening. Hello, James. 
Quentin, tell me. I mean, I'm just getting sick of it. I just bought a new diesel, and you can all... Uh, which you have to add some blue stuff to every now and then uh, for some strange reason. I'm not sure why, but apparently if you don't, it's, the car stops. Yeah, th this is add blue to help it uh, produce less, uh, less PM, PM, yeah. PM10s and, and, and nitrous oxide. So, look, yeah, it, it, I'm an electric car driver and I have been driving electric cars for 10 years mm. and I use one every day. And I think... If we can do something to clean our urban air, that's great. The virtue signalling of, of, of Boris and the government today, for me, it, it's a bit alarming because I know more than anybody, having done 100,000 miles in a battery-only car, that we haven't got the infrastructure, that, that, that the government doesn't appear to have a proper joined-up plan. And expecting people you know, to, to, to change from petrol and diesel into electric cars when there is no no clear strategy for building this infrastructure or knowing how they're going to do it and understanding that we can't just take electricity from the grid. It's got to be renewable. Hmm. So that renewable electricity has got to come from wind farms and, and, and tidal and solar. And that's a huge, daunting, daunting task because we can't have coal-powered electric cars. And the government should be talking about reducing business rates for EV hub operators, taking the VAT off electricity, taking the VAT off electric cars, taking the VAT off the charges, the installations. Because, you know, the, the business model doesn't work unless you can give it massive, massive subsidies. Mm. Now, I'm not hearing anything like that. All I'm hearing is this, this posturing saying, we're going to change the world. Um, and and it, it, it risks a huge, huge backlash because people were told, like you, to buy diesels by Gordon Brown in 2000 with his greenest budget ever. So we've heard this political grandstanding before, and that, that decision, that policy change, made us all buy diesels, and now we have the air pollution problems we have. Um, so you and I and, and, and the 37 million people out there, the drivers, 70% of the electorate, are feeling justifiably a bit cross. Mm. And now you give them no choice and saying, you're going to drive uh, an electric car whether you like it or not, and we don't have the £20,000 electric car that will do 300 miles to a 10-minute charge. Will we have that in 15 years, James? I don't know. Right. You so, sound really fed up and frustrated about this, yeah, Quentin. Completely, completely. And look, I've reached out to Boris. I've written to him. I've reached out to the uh, new uh, Minister for Decarbonisation. I've written to him. I've written to Grant Shapps saying all this stuff, and I have not heard a word. And I am, you know, the great ambassador for electric cars. Talk to me. And we, we can talk about this. You can hear I'm getting cross, can't you? I um, can. We can talk about it's this interesting. We can, we can be measured and intelligent and come up with a solution and not just sit on the on the grandstands making these, these pontifications. Quentin, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Uh, lovely to talk to you. We'll take a short break. The James Whale Show. Come praise the whale on talk radio. Uh, right, let's talk about the reunification of Ireland and whether or not that is a, a, a real serious proposition in the not-too-distant future, considering Sinn Féin is leading the way in the Irish uh, polls at the moment. Uh, Professor John Tong, Professor of Irish Politics at Liverpool University, joins us now. John, good evening. Good evening. Um, I'm, we were talking to a journalist the other day whose name has skipped right out of my mind. Um, it'll come back to me, but he's written a number of books about uh, the reunification of Ireland, and he says basically he thinks it'll happen within the next five years. I think five years is rather soon. 
I mean, if you look at the evidence in Northern Ireland, yes, there's been a few polls that have put support for reunification uh, neck and neck Mm. with those who want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. But the vast bulk of polls have showed that still a majority in Northern Ireland would want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. That said, the, the numbers supporting United Ireland are growing in Northern Ireland. And obviously, if Sinn Féin do do well, uh, in the south this weekend, as the polls are suggesting they will, then again, that cranks up the momentum for a, a united Ireland. But it, it, basically, the, it's, sec- it's the Secretary of State of, for Northern Ireland's gift. He can decide when a border poll should be called in Northern Ireland. And mm. frankly, one under mm. Boris Johnson's government isn't likely to call one soon. Um, do you not think so? Well, the rules of the Good Friday Agreement are that the Secretary of State is obliged to call a border poll if he thinks that public opinion has shifted uh, sufficiently, that there will be very likely, a strong likelihood of a vote for a united Ireland. We're not at that stage in the north yet. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, I think five years is very, very ambitious. But, you know, if you think about it, Northern Ireland celebrates its centenary next year. How many people would take a short price about Northern Ireland celebrating a bicentenary, a, a hundred years on? It seems an improbable prospect because... Mm. You know, the demographics are against unionists in, in Northern Ireland. They will soon become a minority uh, within Northern Ireland already. You know, the, if you want to put it in crude sectarian terms, the number of Catholics is, is virtually level with the number of Protestants. And the more that Catholics support a united Ireland, then the more that possibility increases. But Sinn Féin would still have a job converting those people who say they are neither unionist nor nationalist in Northern Ireland, who are actually growing in number. So that's really the, the key demographic, I think, over the next few years. Um yeah, I I don't understand um, how suddenly feelings have changed. One minute, people were fighting each other on the streets, a very bloody terrorist uh, war going on there for years and years. Are you sure that those people who were the terrorists uh, don't have an influence over younger people at the moment and this is just the sort of thing they're looking for to start trouble again? Well, Sinn Féin has moved into politics. The yeah, no, I know Sinn Féin have, but there are yeah, other... Yeah other people who, uh, who possibly could be a threat to the peace of this nation. Yeah, there's two, there's two sets of groups who, on either side who, in some ways, have, have never put down the gun. On the Republican side, mm. the, the dissident IRAs, each staking their own claim to the title deeds of the IRA, describing themselves as the new IRA or the real IRA, and they have killed a, a significant number of people. And if you look at the police service in Northern Ireland's own statistics... There were still about 100 shooting and bombing incidents in Northern Ireland per year. Which, you know, it still takes up a lot of MI5's t- time. It still takes up a lot of the security services' time, does, does Northern Ireland, mm. because those people haven't gone away. They think Sinn Féin have sold out uh, by, going, by supporting the Good Friday Agreement, by supporting the police service of Northern Ireland. Then on the other side, you, you've still got loyalist paramilitaries, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Defence Association. Both still exist. They both still recruit. And it's almost inconceivable that they would come quietly into a united Ireland, even if the people of Northern Ireland, a majority, voted in favour of a united Ireland. So it's been said before that the last shots that might, might be fired in Northern Ireland would actually from, be from pro-British uh, paramilitaries, resisting British departure from Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, who, who really thinks that they would simply uh, come quietly into United Ireland? So there are risks on both sides. It's always been an unstable uh, peace process politically. You know, the, the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive has collapsed. It's, it's not sat almost as much as it has sat in the two decades since the Good Friday Agreement. So I don't think we should be, we should be complacent. 
But I think that from a Sinn Féin point of view, I think that they realise that you know violence was was counterproductive. Mm. We're probably closer to United Ireland now after two decades of relative, and I mean relative peace, compared to three decades of IRA violence, which frankly uh, didn't really advance mm. that particular cause anywhere at all. The James Whale Show. Come praise the whale on Talk Radio. Hang on, what are they all... Well, oi, 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 concentrate on this programme, you lot, or you'll be out. What are you doing? What are you looking at? Adjusting my camera? That's beginning to worry me even more, because you're laughing. Yeah, so why don't you go outside, get yourself a cup of coffee and sit outside, let me get on with the show. I've got a coffee. Um, His voice sounds like mine, doesn't it? Say something, Steve. Uh, Yeah, oh, it's a miserable day today, terrible. No, Steve, not Paul. Whatever that means. <clears throat> Did you see uh, Al Pacino and... Uh, Why have you changed the subject? Is it getting a little too embarrassing well, for no, you? No, I mean... What you uh, mean? OK. Does well, it, it affects my me. Turn. What? My turn. I'll go on, then. <laughs> if you must. She is talking... You see, you weren't even listening. No, she no, is I talking wasn't. About, I sort of glazed over. You know, slag me off as much as you like. It's great. I feel I'm uh, achieving something. That was uh, the clips for today, the worst of Whale, or sorry, sorry, the best of James Whale. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed them. Well, I suppose if you didn't enjoy them, you won't be listening, will you? Anyway, I'll be back 7 o'clock until 10, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio. Have a great day. Thank you for listening.